Volume the Third, Chapter Ten of Caleb Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Darvinia. Caleb Williams by William Godwin. Volume the Third, Chapter Ten. I procured a new lodging. By some bias of the mind, it may be gratifying itself with images of peril. I inclined to believe that Mrs. Marney's alarm had not been without foundation. I was, however, unable to conjecture through what means danger had approached me, and had therefore only the unsatisfactory remedy of redoubling my watch upon all my actions. Still I had the joint considerations pressing upon me of security and subsistence. I had some small remains of the produce of my former industry, but this was but small, for my employer was in arrear with me, and I did not choose in any method to apply to him for payment. The anxieties of my mind, in spite of all my struggles, preyed upon my health. I did not consider myself as in safety for an instant. My appearance was wasted to a shadow, and I started at every sound that was unexpected. Sometimes I was half tempted to resign myself into the hands of the law, and brave its worst. But resentment and indignation at those times speedily flowed back upon my mind, and reanimated my perseverance. I knew no better resource with respect to subsistence than that I had employed in the former instance, of seeking some third person to stand between me and the disposal of my industry. I might find an individual ready to undertake this office in my behalf, but where should I find the benevolent soul of Mrs. Marney? The person I fixed upon was a Mr. Spurrell, a man who took in work from the watchmakers, and had an apartment upon our second floor. I examined him two or three times with irresolute glances, as we passed upon the stairs, before I would venture to accost him. He observed this, and at length kindly invited me into his apartment. Being seated, he condoled with me upon my seeming bad health, and the solitary mode of my living, and wished to know whether he could be of any service to me. From the first moment he saw me, he had conceived an affection for me. In my present disguise I appeared twisted and deformed, and in other respects by no means an object of attraction, but it seemed Mr. Spurrell had lost an only son about six months before, and I was the very picture of him. If I had put off my counterfeited ugliness, I should probably have lost all hold upon his affections. He was now an old man, as he observed, just dropping into the grave, and his son had been his only consolation. The poor lad was always ailing, but he had been a nurse to him, and the more tending he required while he was alive— the more he missed him now he was dead. Now he had not a friend, nor anybody that cared for him, in the whole world. If I pleased, I should be instead of that son to him, and he would treat me in all respects with the same attention and kindness. I expressed my sense of these benevolent offers, but told him that I should be sorry to be in any way burthensome to him. My ideas at present led me to a private and solitary life, and my chief difficulty was to reconcile this with some mode of earning necessary subsistence. If he would condescend to lend me his assistance in smoothing this difficulty, it would be the greatest benefit he could confer on me. I added that, 
my mind had always had a mechanical and industrious turn, and that I did not doubt of soon mastering any craft to which I seriously applied myself. I had not been brought up to any trade, but if he would favour me with his instructions, I would work with him as long as he pleased for a bare subsistence. I knew that I was asking of him an extraordinary kindness, but I was urged on the one hand by the most extreme necessity, and encouraged on the other by the persuasiveness of his friendly professions. The old man dropped some tears over my apparent distress, and readily consented to everything I proposed. Our agreement was soon made, and I entered upon my functions accordingly. My new friend was a man of a singular turn of mind. Love of money and a charitable officiousness of demeanour were his leading characteristics. He lived in the most penurious manner, and denied himself every indulgence. I entitled myself almost immediately, as he frankly acknowledged, to some remuneration for my labours, and accordingly he insisted upon my being paid. He did not, however, as some persons would have done under the circumstance, pay me the whole amount of my earnings, but professed to subtract from them twenty per cent, as an equitable consideration for instruction, and commission money in procuring me a channel for my industry. Yet he frequently shed tears over me, was uneasy in every moment of our indispensable separation, and exhibited perpetual tokens of attachment and fondness. I found him a man of excellent mechanical contrivance, and received considerable pleasure from his communications. My own sources of information were various, and he frequently expressed his wonder and delight in the contemplation of my powers, as well of amusement as exertion. Thus I appeared to have attained a situation not less eligible than in my connection with Mrs. Marney. I was, however, still more unhappy. My fits of despondence were deeper, and of more frequent recurrence. My health every day grew worse, and Mr. Spurrell was not without apprehensions that he should lose me, as he before lost his only son. I had not been long, however, in this new situation, before an incident occurred which filled me with greater alarm and apprehension than ever. I was walking out one evening, after a long visitation of languor, for an hour's exercise and air, when my ears were struck with two or three casual sounds from the mouth of a hawker who was bawling his wares. I stood still to inform myself more exactly, when, to my utter astonishment and confusion, I heard him deliver himself nearly in these words— here you have the most wonderful and surprising history and miraculous adventures of Caleb Williams. You are informed how he first robbed, and then brought false accusations against his master, as also of his attempting diverse times to break out of prison, till at last he effected his escape in the most wonderful and uncredible manner, as also of his travelling the kingdom in various disguises, and the robberies he committed with a most desperate and daring gang of thieves and of his coming up to London, where it is supposed he now lies concealed, with a true and faithful copy of the hue and cry, printed and published by one of his majesty's most principal secretaries of state, offering a reward of one hundred guineas for apprehending him, all for the price of one half-penny. Petrified as I was at these amazing and dreadful sounds, 
I had the temerity to go up to the man and purchase one of his papers. I was desperately resolved to know the exact state of the fact, and what I had to depend upon. I carried it with me a little way, till, no longer able to endure the tumult of my impatience, I contrived to make out the chief part of its contents, by the help of a lamp, at the upper end of a narrow passage. I found it contained a great number of circumstances that could have been expected in this species of publication. I was equalled to the most notorious housebreaker in the art of penetrating through walls and doors, and to the most accomplished swindler in plausibleness, duplicity, and disguise. The handbill which Larkins had first brought to us upon the forest was printed at length. All my disguises, previously to the last alarm that had been given me by the providence of Mrs. Marney, were faithfully enumerated, and the public were warned to be upon their watch against a person of an uncouth and extraordinary appearance, and who lived in a recluse and solitary manner. I also learned from this paper that my former lodgings had been searched on the very evening of my escape, and that Mrs. Marney had been sent to Newgate, upon a charge of misprision of felony. This last circumstance affected me deeply. In the midst of my own sufferings my sympathies flowed undiminished. It was a most cruel and intolerable idea, if I were not only myself to be an object of unrelenting persecution, but my very touch were to be infectious, and every one that succoured me was to be involved in the common ruin. My instant feeling was that of a willingness to undergo the utmost malice of my enemies, could I by that means have saved this excellent woman from alarm and peril. I afterwards learned that Mrs. Marney was delivered from confinement, by the interposition of her noble relation. My sympathy for Mrs. Marney, however, was at this moment a transient one. A more imperious and irresistible consideration demanded to be heard. With what sensations did I ruminate upon this paper? Every word of it carried despair to my heart. The actual apprehension that I dreaded would perhaps have been less horrible. It would have put an end to that lingering terror to which I was a prey. Disguise was no longer of use. A numerous class of individuals, through every department, almost every house of the metropolis, would be induced to look with suspicious eye upon every stranger, especially a very solitary stranger, that fell under their observation. The prize of one hundred guineas was held out to excite their avarice, and sharpen their penetration. It was no longer Bow Street, it was a million of men in arms against me. Neither had I the refuge which few men have been so miserable as to want, of one single individual, with whom to repose my alarms and who might shelter me from the gaze of indiscriminate curiosity. What could exceed the horrors of this situation? My heart knocked against my ribs, my bosom heaved, I gasped and panted for breath. There is no end, then, said I, to my persecutors. My unwearied and long-continued labours lead to no termination. Termination! No, the lapse of time that cures all other things makes my case more desperate. Why, then, exclaimed I, a new train of thought suddenly rushing into my mind, why should I sustain the contest any longer? 
I can at least elude my persecutors in death. I can bury myself and the traces of my existence together in friendly oblivion, and thus bequeath eternal doubt and ever new alarm to those who have no peace but in pursuing me. In the midst of the horrors with which I was now impressed, this idea gave me pleasure, and I hastened to the Thames to put it in instant execution. Such was the paroxysm of my mind, that my powers of vision became partially suspended. I was no longer conscious to the feebleness of disease, but rushed along with fervent impetuosity. I passed from street to street without observing what direction I pursued. After wandering I know not how long, I arrived at London Bridge. I hastened to the stairs and saw the river covered with vessels. "'No human being must see me,' said I, at the instant that I vanish for ever. This thought required some consideration. A portion of time had elapsed since my first desperate purpose. My understanding began to return. The sight of the vessels suggested to me the idea of once more attempting to leave my native country. I inquired, and speedily found that the cheapest passage I could procure was in a vessel moored near the tower, and which was to sail in a few days for Middleburg in Holland. I would have gone instantly on board, and have endeavoured to prevail with the captain to let me remain there till he sailed but unfortunately I had not money enough in my pocket to defray my passage. It was worse than this. I had not money enough in the world. I, however, paid the captain half his demand, and promised to return with the rest. I knew not in what manner it was to be procured, but I believed that I should not fail in it. I had some idea of applying to Mr. Spurrell. Surely he would not refuse me. He appeared to love me with parental affection, and I thought I might trust myself for a moment in his hands. I approached my place of residence with a heavy and foreboding heart. Mr. Spurrell was not at home, and I was obliged to wait for his return. Worn out with fatigue, disappointment, and the ill state of my health, I sunk upon a chair. Speedily, however, I recollected myself. I had work of Mr. Spurrell's in my trunk, which had been delivered out to me that very morning, to five times the amount I wanted. I canvassed for a moment whether I should make use of this property as if it were my own, but I rejected the idea with disdain. I had never in the smallest degree merited the reproaches that were cast upon me, and I determined I never would merit them. I sat gasping, anxious, full of the blackest forebodings. My terrors appeared, even to my own mind, greater and more importunate than the circumstances authorized. It was extraordinary that Mr. Spurrell should be abroad at this hour. I had never known it happen before. His bedtime was between nine and ten. Ten o'clock came, eleven o'clock, but not Mr. Spurrell. At midnight I heard his knock at the door. Every soul in the house was in bed. Mr. Spurrell, on account of his regular hours, was unprovided with a key to open for himself. A gleam, a sickly gleam, of the social spirit came over my heart. I flew nimbly downstairs and opened the door. 
I could perceive, by the little taper in my hand, something extraordinary in his countenance. I had not time to speak before I saw two other men follow him. At the first glance I was sufficiently assured what sort of persons they were. At the second I perceived that one of them was no other than Gines himself. I had understood formerly that he had been of this profession, and I was not surprised to find him in it again, though I had for three hours endeavoured, as it were, to prepare myself for the unavoidable necessity of falling once again into the hands of the officers of law, the sensation I felt at their entrance was indescribably agonising. I was besides not a little astonished at the time and manner of their entrance and I felt anxious to know whether Mr. Spurl could be base enough to have been their introducer. I was not long held in perplexity. He no sooner saw his followers within the door than he exclaimed with convulsive eagerness, "'There, there, that is your man! Thank God! Thank God!' Gines looked eagerly in my face with a countenance expressive alternately of hope and doubt, and answered, by God, and I do not know whether it be or no. I am afraid we are in the wrong box. Then recollecting himself, we will go into the house and examine further, however. We all went upstairs into Mr. Spurl's room. I set down the candle upon the table. I had hitherto been silent, but I determined not to desert myself and was a little encouraged to exertion by the scepticism of Gines. With a calm and deliberate manner, therefore, in my feigned voice, one of the characteristics of which was lisping, I asked, "'Pray, gentlemen, what may be your pleasure with me?' "'Why,' said Gines, "'our errand is with one Caleb Williams, and a precious rascal he is. I ought to know the chap well enough.' but they say he has as many faces as there are days in the year. So you please to pull off your face, or if you cannot do that, at least you can pull off your clothes, and let us see what your hump is made of. I remonstrated, but in vain. I stood detected in part of my artifice, and Gines, though still uncertain, was every moment more and more confirmed in his suspicions. Mr. Spurl perfectly gloated, with eyes that seemed ready to devour everything that passed. As my imposture gradually appeared more palpable, he repeated his exclamation, "'Thank God! Thank God!' At last, tired with this scene of mummery, and disgusted beyond measure with the base and hypocritical figure I seemed to exhibit, I exclaimed, well, I am Caleb Williams. Conduct me wherever you please. And now, Mr. Spurl. He gave a violent start. The instant I declared myself his transport had been at the highest, and was, to any power he was able to exert, absolutely uncontrollable. But the unexpectedness of my address, and the tone in which I spoke, electrified him. Is it possible, continued I, that you should have been the wretch to betray me? What have I done to deserve this treatment? Is this the kindness you professed, the affection that was perpetually in your mouth, to be the death of me? My poor boy, my dear creature, 
cried Spurl, whimpering, and in a tone of the humblest expostulation. "'Indeed I could not help it. I would have helped it if I could. I hope they will not hurt my darling. I am sure I shall die if they do.' "'Miserable driveller!' interrupted I, with a stern voice. "'Do you betray me into the remorseless fangs of the law, and then talk of my not being hurt?' I know my sentence, and am prepared to meet it. You have fixed the halter upon my neck, and at the same price would have done so to your only son. Go, count your accursed guineas. My life would have been safer in the hands of one I had never seen than in yours, whose mouth and whose eyes for ever ran over with crocodile affection. I have always believed that my sickness— and, as he apprehended, approaching death, contributed its part to the treachery of Mr. Spurrel. He predicted to his own mind the time when I should no longer be able to work. He recollected with agony the expense that attended his son's illness and death. He determined to afford me no assistance of a similar kind. He feared, however, the reproach of deserting me. He feared the tenderness of his nature. He felt that I was growing upon his affections, and that in a short time he could not have deserted me. He was driven by a sort of implicit impulse, for the sake of avoiding one ungenerous action, to take refuge in another, the basest and most diabolical. This motive, conjoining with the prospect of the proffered reward— was an incitement too powerful for him to resist. End of chapter 10 of Volume the Third